Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for the Pharmacy Leadership Podcast. Our discussion for this podcast series focuses on leadership topics within pharmacy practice, including the business of pharmacy, development of leadership skills, career transitions, and more. My name is Christine Zhang, Medication Reconciliation Pharmacy Supervisor at Regional Medical Center of San Jose. And my name is Bashal Shah, PGY1 Specialty Pharmacy Resident at Emory University Hospital Midtown. And we will be your hosts for today's episode, which focuses on imposter syndrome. With us today are Dr. Joseph Cavanaugh and Dr. Lindsay Kelly. Dr. Cavanaugh is the Assistant Director of Clinical Pharmacy Services, PGY1 Residency Program Director at RWJ Barnabas Health Community Medical Center. His practice interests include critical care, emergency medicine, and leadership. Dr. Lindsay Kelly is the Associate Chief Pharmacy Officer, PGY1 Community-Based Residency Program Director, and Adjunct Clinical Assistant Professor in Pharmacy at Michigan Medicine. All views expressed today are those of our speakers and not their employers. Thank you both for joining us, Dr. Kelly and Dr. Kavanaugh. Let's get started on our topic today, imposter syndrome. To dive right into it, could you please tell us what imposter syndrome means to you? And we can start with you, Dr. Kavanaugh. Absolutely. So to me, it is a little voice in the back of my head, constantly questioning whether I do my job well enough and pressuring me to perform better. Imposter syndrome has always been most evident when someone thanks me for doing something or recognizes or commends my work. In these instances, I almost always feel uncomfortable. And in the back of my mind, I start thinking of all the ways I could have done more to deserve such recognition. Thank you, Dr. Kavanaugh. I've absolutely had that feeling before, especially as a current PGY1 resident. Dr. Kelly, how would you describe what imposter syndrome means to you? Thanks, Michelle. I think probably similar. Um, for me, when, mono, when imposter syndrome manifests, it's usually when I'm in the room with leaders or other people I admire who are intelligent and driven or just otherwise lovely humans. And there is this fleeting, deeply uncomfortable moment of, I do not have this down. I am not an expert in this. And they are totally going to figure me or it out. Now that we've sort of defined loosely what imposter syndrome means to us. What do you feel is the biggest misconception of imposter syndrome? Sure, I'll go ahead and take that one. I think the biggest misconception is that not everyone experiences it. Imposter syndrome is actually really common and it's more prevalent in high achievers than in other groups. So for our profession, a lot of driven individuals in healthcare, you're probably sitting next to someone who has experienced it more likely than not. Um, If you look at the literature, it's more frequently used to describe women, it's described by women, and growing data describes how this becomes even more complicated in situations of intersectionality. So specifically thinking about where a person might be a woman and also a woman of color. The Harvard Business Review has done a number of articles on imposter syndrome, but I specifically liked one that brought to light some of this data. And while most people experience imposter syndrome at some point, system structures or systematic structures most often help those who are in the majority. So thinking about men, mostly white men, experience throughout their career a diminishing feeling of discomfort over time as their work is validated and recognized, where in other groups that you don't see that happen. Additionally, things like being able to identify role models and mentors 
that they can connect or resonate with how they might move in the world or look in the world allows them to also have that diminishing feeling of imposter syndrome. Lastly, it's far less frequent that in these majority mainstream cohorts in organizations that those workplace contributions are questioned in a way that intends to call competence into question. And we see this more frequently in women and other groups. Thank you, Dr. Kelly. I have certainly come across articles about how gender and race may play a role in imposter syndrome. And I agree it's important to keep these two factors in mind when we're trying to better understand uh, this phenomenon. Dr. Kavanaugh, do you feel there are any additional misconceptions about imposter syndrome? Yeah, you know, I definitely agree with what Dr. Kelly said. And I think another misconception is probably that it's not real and that imposter syndrome, you know, quote unquote, keeps you humble. Um, you know, you hear that a lot. And I think while overconfidence is also a negative, I think imposter syndrome prevents many people from developing the confidence that they do need to believe in themselves and their skill set. You know, it's, I think it's with everything in life. It is about balance. Overconfidence is not healthy, but neither is living in that constant state of doubt or in this case, imposter syndrome. Yeah, no, thank you both so much for sharing. Those are definitely fantastic points. And I feel like now that we have a good grasp on imposter syndrome and its existence and really what it is, how prevalent do you feel imposter syndrome actually is? Do you feel like there are any traits or characteristics that predispose individuals to experiencing their imposter syndrome? You know, I think uh, Dr. Kelly just kind of touched on this a little bit, but I don't even want to try and guess a percentage. If I had to, I would say probably majority, more than 50% of those high performers, especially those high performers that we see in pharmacy, I personally found that many of those who may outwardly display those signs of confidence are often the ones who are dealing with imposter syndrome. Um, like Dr. Kelly kind of referenced to, so they may be sitting next to you every day. Um, I think that's why high achievers in general are at the highest risk. While they are sometimes labeled perfectionists, I like to think of these individuals as the high performers who all leaders can identify as, you know, their point person or their go-to person within a department. They often produce the best results, but are often the ones who are also in, in uh, you know, the constant self-doubt. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Kavanaugh. I know it can definitely be hard to put a number on it and definitely agree with your point as well. Uh, Dr. Kelly, any additional thoughts on this? Yeah, I, you know, we, we did talk a little bit about prevalence. When we talk about traits or characteristics, I think that's a big question. And I would say there's probably in the way that I would phrase that is there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I'll say that on, you know, my journey, I've learned a lot about what within me contributes to my feelings of imposter syndrome. And so I'll share that just in case it resonates with anyone else, which is, you know, I certainly fall into the high achieving cohort that Dr. Kavanaugh just described. I'm the oldest of my siblings. And so I think growing up, I often felt like I needed to know things so that I could share that with them. Uh, one of the things that's been, I think, really interesting to me and that I've been exploring through this pandemic has been what was probably a frequent low level anxiety, which I noticed got worse during that time period. And so at this point in my career, what struck me is that I've seen a reemergence of imposter syndrome when I was sure I had resolved it. And so I've learned that it's also not a thing that you tackle once and goes away. And I wish I could tell you what those traits and characteristics that you create countermeasures for are, but I think that's still a journey I'm on. When did you both first learn about imposter syndrome? You're taking me back a little bit here, Christine, but um, I think I first encountered imposter syndrome during my PGY2. Um, and to be honest, I think it created quite a bit of anxiety for me. You know, I've obviously heard the term before, but couldn't really put the pieces together that this textbook definition that we learned in pharmacy school was what I was currently experiencing, you know, especially as I was transitioning from that resident to a clinical specialist on my own. 
in all the transparency, I wasn't a particularly strong student in pharmacy school. And I never really gave my full efforts until the latter years. As a result, when I started my residency and then later in my career, I always felt like I could be doing more, performing better, and I didn't deserve to be where I was at. I, I think it's important to learn about imposter syndrome earlier in your career, uh, especially prior to finishing pharmacy school if possible. I personally wish that I learned about it, had more examples, you know, um, podcasts like this, learning from experts such as Dr. Kelly, um, you know, ways to identify it and, you know, some potential strategies to overcome it. Learning about it's one thing, but, you know, what do I do if I am experiencing this? Dr. Kavanaugh. I also first heard about it during my PGY1 residency, but I didn't actually have a discussion about it with one of my preceptors until my PGY2 as well. How about you, Dr. Kelly? I think I'm a little envious that you guys learned about it so early on. I was definitely a little bit later in my career, probably early out of residency. And I remember sitting at, it was probably a professional organization meeting and talking to peers, and in this particular instance, I think I was talking to a female colleague, and I was describing what was happening, and she gave it the name imposter syndrome. I think I spent probably the rest of that summer talking to other colleagues about it and learning how prevalent it was and just, you know, discussing with other, not just new and emerging leaders, but even leaders later on in their career, you know, kind of where it was. But I was I was definitely, you know, done with residency or about to be done with residency um, when I learned about it. So I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm a little bit envious of y'all. Yeah, thank you both so much for sharing. And Dr. Kelly, to your point, I mean, it's definitely something we talk about amongst ourselves as residents and my colleagues as well. But how has imposter syndrome impacted your career thus far? Uh, and has it changed over the time or has it really remained relatively consistent? I think that's a good question. I would say during my residency and probably earlier in my career, I always had that feeling I could be doing more, performing better. And, you know, I kind of touched upon that second. I didn't really feel like I deserved to be where I was at. You know, I think this led to me taking on more responsibility. And I was always trying to outperform those around me, especially during residency. I always felt it was important to be, you know, the best resident. I was always working harder and, you know, that put some stress on me. Um, I constantly felt as if I wasn't meeting standards, kept pushing myself to do more, do more, be better. And I think this all came to a head when I took on a leadership role um, about three months before COVID changed the world. At that time, you know, I was excited to continue developing and strengthening my skills. But part of me kept questioning, you know, was I the right person for this job, making that jump from clinical to leadership? You know, as COVID slowly changed everything, I think you know the way that imposter syndrome impacted me changed as well. For the first time, I didn't have time to doubt myself or really focus on those weaknesses like I normally would. Everyone everywhere just had to dive in and get the work done. Um, when COVID finally did slow down after that first year or so, I think it was at that point that I was able to look back, reflect and realize, you know, look at everything we as pharmacists have accomplished and, you know, everything I was able to help contribute to the team. And I think it was, that was the first time really since residency, I didn't, I felt that, you know, confidence. I didn't feel that doubt or guilt. So I guess the short answer is, you know, it's pushed me along the way, caused some anxiety but it's definitely changed over time as a resident to clinical specialist now to a leader. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Kavanaugh. Uh, Dr. Kelly, how would you say imposter syndrome has impacted your career thus far? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about what Dr. Kavanaugh mentioned earlier related to the correlation with high confidence. And that really struck me. If I think back over my career, uh, I don't know that I can articulate how the feeling itself impacted me, but there are definite moments where I had to do a gut check or think about what was happening to me. And what really struck me about what Dr. Kavanaugh said is that in those moments, I think 
those around me probably perceived a high level of confidence. And I believe that because I've had moments where people have said, oh, well, you always seem so confident. And in those moments, I think those are some of the times when I was really seeking to recenter and realign and kind of get my bearings again. And I've definitely directly following those moments called a loved one or a friend just to kind of recenter and, you know, talk about my values or ideas and think about, okay, why, you know, what about that vulnerability was scary or why am I feeling this, you know, Im- imposter syndrome, you know, and, and thinking about like how that I think has changed over my career, how I've led or interacted with others is, is probably, I think something that has only really come to clarity even in, in these conversations just now. Following that train of thought, um, during times in your career when you felt particularly impacted by imposter syndrome, and I know you both briefly touched, touched on this already, what resources did you seek to combat imposter syndrome? That's the, that's the big question, right? Like once you figure it out, what do you do about it? I think at the time that I started to really think about what it was and discovered a name for it. I was also reading a lot of uh, Brene Brown, who was a a researcher, um, particularly around vulnerability and and those kinds of topics. But anyone who knows me knows I love her and her work on vulnerability and perfectionism. So I was reading a lot of that. I think the books at that time were Daring Greatly and Gifts of Imperfection, which are some of her earliest stuff. But her work discusses the interplay essentially of perfectionism and feeling worthy, or in this case, not like an imposter. I read a lot of, of Brene and tried to adapt some of what she was, you know, writing and articulating into my life. I think specifically, I began to think of imposter syndrome in terms of a, a thing that would occur, you know, like I said, I, when I needed to realign, when I, to use her terms, wasn't being my authentic self. And, and that term and the way she describes it is really used to describe when you're, it, when you're being your authentic self, you're engaging with vulnerability and courage, right? So not necessarily like fear courage, but, but deeply held values courage. And so I, I really started to hone in on when I'm feeling this feeling, it is maybe not that I'm insecure, but that I'm sharing key components of the core of who I am. And that I think can feel risky. And certainly you're not ever really an expert in in, you know, kind of any one time in your life. So I think that really, that really spoke to me. I also, one of the other things that Brene talks about is this concept of connection. And so I really leaned into uh, a recommendation of hers, which is when you're starting to feel kind of that vulnerability or uh, that insecurity or imposter type syndrome, you know, connect with others, talk about what you're experiencing. Um, and so for me, you know, I, I shared that I, I was t- starting to talk with other leaders in my in my world about this concept and how I felt. And that that really helped me kind of realize that I wasn't alone. But I also found the same commonality with with friends and family. And so, you know, I think I was uh, increasingly aware of the network of people who felt this that I could turn to when I started to experience it. And, you know, really, when I a way to resolve that feeling of being an imposter or feeling less than. You know, I think uh, Dr. Kelly kind of hit on some good points there. Um, And, you know, I think I had a similar situation to what she mentioned earlier about sitting next to a colleague. Before I ever reach out to any resources, I I don't think there was as much data and information and transparency about imposter syndrome 
you know, five, seven, 10 years ago as there is now. Um, so when I first, before I saw any resources, you know, I reached out to my mentors. Um, I voiced my feelings to others. Um, and I feel like they really added some perspective. I feel like we're often our harshest critic and they were able to offer kind of a different objective viewpoint. Um, you know, we see ourselves in one light, but they really see us as, as we are, um, as we're producing things without any of that bias that we intrinsically have, you know, from there, I think, um, as I started to learn about it, I went to the internet being the pharmacy nerd at heart, had to go to research papers, you know, um, any studies, posters that people were doing. Um, I read some books, Brene Brown as well. Um, all of my mentors have been female. So, um, Cheryl Sandberg lean in was something that and I was leading book called discussions among my residents for years about that book. So, you know, I try to learn as much about imposter syndrome as I could just from the resources that were available then. Awesome. Thank you both so much, Dr. Kelly and Dr. Kavanaugh. I definitely value a lot of those resources and conversations that I'm able to have earlier on in my career as a PGY1 pharmacy resident as well. Um, but I do have to ask, what advice about combating or overcoming imposter syndrome would you give to maybe your younger self? Or what type of advice would you give to a new practitioner like myself experiencing imposter syndrome or other pharmacy residents that are out there as well? You know, I, I really think this is a, a good question. I think it's, you know, persons specific, if you will. Um, the more I read about imposter syndrome, the more, you know, I think I realize and everyone realizes it's not something that you can just change overnight. If I were to give myself or my younger self advice, it would be to mo be more open about it. Kind of like I said, you know, more people than you know are in the same boat. And ironically, someone else going through it may be, off, be, may be able to offer, you know, some perspective that they have that you need to realize that those feelings of inadequacy that you are feeling are invalid. Then I want to remind them that it takes time to improve. Nothing's going to happen in a day. Um, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, as they always say. So you, you need to retrain the way you think and view yourself. And I think it starts with openness about your feelings and perspective of what is fact versus feeling. Uh, from there, I think it continues with the support of others and knowing when to ask for help and not taking on too much so that you can focus your attention on those projects 100%. I kind of referenced this earlier. I was I was grabbing projects as many as I can to kind of outperform others. Um, but if you focus on one project 100%, you know, you're able to focus everything on that and not have those feelings of could I have done better because you were only focused on that one thing. You know, in these instances, you dedicated more time to it than you would have if you'd taken on three or more projects. I think one thing that's really helped me is setting a lofty but realistic goal on top of an already predetermined goal. So every time I have a project, I have a set goal and then what I call a stretch goal. Uh, you know, and upon completion of that project or whatever it may be, this offers me kind of an objective benchmark. And that kind of prevents me from doubting myself because either I did A, hit the goal, so therefore I shouldn't have feelings of doubt because I hit that goal I set for myself. Or B, you know, I didn't hit the goal, but I'll use that as an opportunity to improve. You know, why didn't I hit that goal? What could I have done better? Um, and I think as I get older and continue to grow, not hitting goals really leads to less feelings of doubt for me rather than, you know, what can I do to improve? And I use that as an opportunity to continue to grow. And we talk to our residents about it all the time and our students. So I think some self-reflection really showed me that I should be doing that for myself as well. Absolutely. Thank you. That's that's great advice and definitely something that I hope to apply throughout the you know next stages of my career as well. Dr. Kelly, would you like to add anything in regards to advice to your younger self or other new practitioners that are out there? Sure. I think yeah, I really liked what Dr. Kavanaugh was saying about stopping and you know, kind of retraining the way that you think. I think if I could go back or if I, you know, in the ways that I talk to some of the folks that I mentor and even some of my peers, we talk a lot about, you know, conceptually this idea of self-talk. And so I think, you know, the short answer is really to just like stop, practice some self-talk, 
talk to yourself the same way you would talk to someone you love, right? Engaging with authenticity and courage. I really like what Dr. Kavanaugh mentioned around setting goals, things that are tangible, tactical ways to kind of remind yourself and to become grounded. I think um, one of my favorite quotes right now, uh, again, from Brene Brown, who has a, a new book that I'm actually working through, but one of, her, one of the quotes she talks about is this idea of grounded confidence. And she says, with grounded confidence, we accept our imperfections and they don't diminish our self-worth, right? So it ties back to our previous conversation about like authentic humility or practicing humility, which is different than like hubris or overconfidence and, and finding this place where we, we're okay with what we don't know, we're, we're okay with what we do know. And we found both tactical and, you know, psychological ways to engage with authenticity and courage. I certainly can relate to that. I try to be very conscious of that voice in my head and often have to remind myself to hit the reset button and practice some positive self-talk. So thank you, Dr. Kelly and Dr. Kavanaugh. Other than providing the advice you both mentioned, what are some other ways we could support our colleagues learners, and other individuals in whom we recognize the potential signs of imposter syndrome? Yeah, I think that's that's a tough one. Um, you know, first, I think everyone has to kind of be on their own journey, doing their own work. If you're, if you're doing that work, then, you know, you're able to stay grounded and, and assist others. If you're not doing in your own work, then I guess first do that. Uh, I work with a colleague who has always says, first clean your own house, right? So like, and then once you kind of are, are in a place where you're centered and you can kind of manage your own self-talk, set your own goals, and you can come back to helping someone else. And so I kind of think of that, the flight attendant oxygen mask thing, right? Like first put on your mask and then come back to someone else. I think once you're in that space, simply engaging in a dialogue that allows them to explore some of what they're feeling, what's happening, one of the things that uh, I think is, has been really interesting to me as my, my siblings have raised their children is, you know, they talk about this, like, listen to your body kind of concept. And so I think just simply sometimes listening to our body, right? Like, what is physically happening? What are the thoughts that are occurring when it's happening? Asking these questions of your colleagues to say, you know, is it something you feel like you can feel when it's happening? Do you start to get red? Do you feel your heart race? Like, and then, you know, helping them identify triggers so that, you know, what are the thoughts when it happens and, and figuring out even something as simple as how can I support you when I see it happening or how can I support you when you see it happening? Um, I think those can be really powerful. Uh, Dr. Kelly, I really love that analogy with the oxygen mask thing. Um, we did a self-care thing for our residents actually Wednesday of this past week. And one of the analogies they used was the oxygen mask or, you know, filling your own cup if you if your cup's not filled, you can't really fill others' cup and help them. So um, I can definitely relate to that analogy. And, you know, when it comes to supporting others, I, I kind of feed off a lot of what you said. I, I think supporting others comes from kind of how I was supported and kind of what you touched upon. Offer some some objective perspective. Um, bring it out into the open. Talk about it and have them talk about it with you. Often that helps alleviate just some of the stress and anxiety associated with anyway because now there's someone they can talk to about it and, you know, really relate to one-on-one. I think one mistake though, that people make often is comparison to others. Um, you know, that often leads to further doubt, you know, even for myself, 
you know, um, if I compare myself to someone else, I may find the one highlighted ability that the other person has that I may not have, or I may lack in, and then I'm comparing myself to them. And uh, that leads to more anxiety. So I think offering support, discussing the feelings, um, and again, reviewing some of those objective measures that we talked about has seemed to work best for me thus far. I think that's kind of how I would approach a colleague or a learner in the, who's experiencing the same thing. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, and you kind of touched on this before, um, both of you, Dr. Kelly and Dr. Kavanaugh, but in your opinion, when does self-doubt cross over into imposter syndrome? And once you cross over that line, what do you see as the risks of unrecognized or untempered imposter syndrome? Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, when I think of self-doubt, I think that more of a transient lack of confidence that usually happens, you know, before completing a task or, um, you know, before an interview, you have those experiences and anxiety like before you walk in. And I think this is a little different than imposter syndrome because I think imposter syndrome lasts, you know, into that moment or after that experience. So not just before the interview or before the task, but during and after you completed it. Um, and I feel like that feeling is much more prolonged than self-doubt. You know, I found that while my feelings of imposter syndrome have improved, they definitely haven't uh, disappeared completely. Uh, the difference is now that I utilize them as a positive motivating force rather than a negative, you know, anxiety and doubt inducing feeling kind of, like I said earlier, retraining the way you think. I think that going through imposter syndrome is difficult and obviously doesn't have the same effects for everyone. Some individuals may experience more than others and that may cause serious anxiety that, you know, falls into other aspects of their life and even their personal life. Um, and I think, you know, that's a, 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 unfortunately a consequence. And while I feel I've matured and benefited from my experience, it's not something that I would necessarily recommend that, you know, everyone should experience imposter syndrome. I think that having confidence in your abilities from the start, establishing a healthy outlook on success and failures early in life and learning about imposter syndrome earlier in your career is definitely more beneficial than, you know, maybe ever experiencing it. Thank you both for sharing your experiences, your your insight, and your advice for combating imposter syndrome. As we're reaching the end of our time together, do you have any final thoughts you would like to share? Yeah, I I think what Dr. Kavanaugh referenced around the intersection and balance of self-doubt, anxiety, imposter syndrome is really important. I think I would add to that maybe even... Uh, you know, as we're learning more about the way that, you know, each person's unique journey and potentially even trauma comes into play can be so individual. And so thinking about how that plays in as well, I think, you know, there, there is something to be said about a healthy understanding of skills and abilities, especially in a clinical setting, you know, which is so important. Um, but I also think that's, you know, another one of those things that's complex. And so, you know, oddly enough, where I'm at in my life, I spend a lot of time like I said, listening to my body and working to identify and understand when and why I'm feeling self-doubt. Is it because of a new topic? Uh, if so, great. That's normal. Curiosity is great. You know, curiosity is something we should be practicing. If it seems out of place for the context I'm in, you know, I start to ask myself questions, you know, like I raised earlier about like why I might feel that way. Did I get enough sleep? And so I think those those questions can't be emphasized enough. There's also some good work in you know, the flip side of that, which is ex listening when you're experiencing passion and joy and amplifying those moments. You know, Dr. Kavanaugh talked a little bit about self-care, and I think that's a really positive uh, emphasis that has come out of a lot of the last few years' work. And so thinking about, you know, where you are environmentally, emotionally, physically, asking yourself some of the same questions that you might, <laughs> maybe you might ask uh, one of my toddler nieces or nephews, you know, have you eaten? Have you slept? 
I also think given the rate of burnout, I would, you know, try to put it in context, right? So maybe it's imposter syndrome. Maybe you're suffering, you know, a brief instance of anxiety. Maybe there's more that you as an individual kind of need to figure out. I was thinking about this because I, you know, I'm definitely less resilient today than I was a few years ago. And even prepping for this podcast actually got me back into rereading Brene Brown's The Gifts of Imperfection. So I'm like, you know, doubling up my dose of Brene Brown right now, which of course I highly recommend. But I think it really has brought me back to this place where I like to encourage both myself and others to, you know, practice and work towards this concept of grace. Um, If, you know, a lot of people ask me, like, how did you get where you are in your career? And I always, you know, kind of respond with serendipity and grace. But all the way around, everyone is kind of in this journey. And so being able to practice grace and, and figuring out kind of like, what is your journey? What is everybody else's? And honestly, like, you know, one of my, one of my other favorite phrases from, you know, all of my Brene Brown books, which there are a lot, is you learn courage by couraging, right? So to kind of some of the things that Dr. Kavanaugh even talked about earlier, you have to like, you know, figure it out and do it. So get in there and, and, you know, courage. You know, I, I was thinking about this response as Dr. Kelly was speaking and, um, you know, I don't really think there's much to add. I think that was a perfect answer. Um, the only thing I will say is that I am a strong believer, um, that positive thoughts lead to more positive outcomes and, you know, self-care I think is a huge part of that. So I would look to others, um, you know, try and be positive when possible, look at the cup as half full, um, instead of half empty and really practice that self-care. And I think, you know, doing that will help you, guide you throughout not just you know your professional career but your personal life as well awesome thank you both again so much well for those of you listening that's all the time that we have today thank you again to dr kelly and dr kavanaugh for joining us to discuss imposter syndrome for those of you listening you can find more member exclusive content including resources for self-development leading pharmacy enterprises and teams and practice management on the ashp website thank you all again for joining us and be sure to subscribe to the ashp official podcast Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.